Hi, it's Tom here. The show will get underway in just one second, but before that, I just want to tell you all about how you can best support Spiked and all the work that we do here. As many of you all know, we have no paywall, we have no subscriber model, there's no extra section for paying customers. All of our articles and our essays and our podcasts are free because we want everyone to be able to read us and for our ideas to spread as far and as wide as possible. But to keep that up and for us to grow as well, we rely on donations from our supporters, particularly those who give money every month. So if you enjoy the work we do, please do consider becoming a regular donor. One-off donations are brilliant. They're always greatly appreciated. But it's by building up that bank of regular supporters that we at Spiked here can really plan for the future and for bigger and better things. Just £5 a month can have a huge impact for us. So to those who already give in whatever frequency, thank you. And to those who'd like to, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner to sign up. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined as ever by Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we have the microaggression police, the Labour leadership race and the film and TV awards season. So-called microaggressions, such as asking people where they're originally from or joking about their accent. Are you really Asian? Can I see a photo of your mother? People would take a step back and be like, wait, what are you? If you've been accused of delivering a microaggression, you might wonder why. Having no idea what it was you said that was so offensive. The University of Sheffield plans to pay 20 of its students to tackle so-called microaggressions on campus. The university describes microaggressions as subtle but offensive comments. The students will work as race equality champions who will be trained to prevent racist microaggressions and to, I quote, lead healthy conversations instead. Tom, what do you make of this proposal? It's a little bit creepy, isn't it? It is quite creepy. I think it's funny that those of us who talk a lot about campus censorship are often kind of dismissed by university leaders in particular as just kind of mad alarmists who see like Stasi-like behaviour everywhere. And then they go out and put an ad out <laughs> for students to wander around campus listening in on conversations, it seems like, to detect any so-called microaggressions and then effect- intervene effectively. There's also talk about them potentially training student societies in the right way to, you know, I guess, talk to ethnic minority people in their groups <laughs> or something. It's really quite strange. And I think what you kind of see with this is the sort of collision of two very regressive trends on campus, one of which is this tendency amongst university officials and students' unions, who are, as we all know, predominantly white, middle class, often quite well off, mm. to treat minority students as kind of like people in their care, to yeah. really patronise them. And you really see that through the idea of microaggressions, because for people who might not be familiar with this kind of lunacy, so the idea is that often unassuming clumsy questions or statements directed towards a minority person is going to make them feel different, is going to make them feel other. The classic examples are, you know, telling, asking a black person if you can touch their hair or asking where someone's really from. Yeah. And it just presents, first of all, it's this kind of ludicrous idea that these kind of very minor, often quite idiotic slights are kind of on a par with serious oppression. But it also just treats minority students as kind of incapable of dealing with just like the old idiot, basically, mm. or being able to push back a little bit on a slightly strange conversation that you even need this kind of vast apparatus of um, racial equality champions and all the rest of it to deal with it is, is pretty patronising. But the other end of it, which is the, the kind of, they're 
appetite for comical authoritarianism. They almost don't understand when they put this stuff out. It was interesting seeing Sheffield University trying to push back on some of the criticism, mm. how mad this idea is. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's not particularly new. I mean, King's College London got pulled up a couple of years ago because their students' union, I should say, had advertised for safe space marshals who would wander around events, making sure people <laughs> cling to the safe space policy. And again, there was a lack of self-awareness there because they were actually spotted at a Jacob Rees-Mogg event, actually all dressed in black. Mm. So it's this kind of this kind of layers of ridiculousness. But what's also, I think, important to note about it, other than that, is the fact that, as is so often the case, policing speech, even just kind of etiquette, almost in this level, is always really the close cousin of policing thought itself. Yeah. I mean, if you think basically, even though they say this isn't about policing speech, if you just object to the idea of microaggressions entirely, you're certainly going to be given short shrift by these microaggression monitors. And also there's examples in the US where it very quickly breaches into policing ideas itself. So the University of California a couple of years ago, they had a big list of microaggressions. And one of them was saying things like, I do not believe in race and America is a melting pot, mm. which apparently were kind of subtle signals that you wouldn't, I guess not necessarily racist, but kind of insufficiently woke. You're too cavalier about the problem that confronts us, etc. So I think it's again, as ever, it's a silly story, but demonstrates some quite serious trends. It feels like, yeah, and 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 some of the examples that Sheffield has given of microaggressions. I just wanted to read some of those <laughs> out. So one is stop making everything a race issue. Which, again, as you suggested, Tom, if you object to the idea of microaggressions, <laughs> you're going to come a cropper. Why are you searching for things to be offended about? Again, you know, you cannot reject the premise of this whole discussion. <laughs> well, that's a microaggression. A lot of those monitors are going to hear, it Absolutely. seems like, as they get going. <laughs> And then, and then there's obviously the more understandable stuff, um, things you say actually, you know, people being asked to touch each other's hair. Why, why are people touching other people's hair that they don't know? That's very weird. You should stop doing that. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't think you need to pay a student to monitor, <laughs> to monitor this kind of behavior. But anyway, Ella, what were your thoughts? Well, Sheffield has form in this kind of area. I mean, it already has, the students union already has an anti-racism, discrimination and hate crime policy, which essentially bans racist speech or anything like it. Mm. Also, uh, a number of years ago, Sheffield Juni kicked out Felix Ngole, who was a student who essentially got kicked out because he was a Christian and had uh, controversial views on same-sex marriage as the university saw it. And they used that reason to kick him off his course. And uh, a number of years ago, Sheffield Students Union banned white students from coming to a discussion about how to make Sheffield a more anti-racist society. So all of this is kind of bubbling around in mm. Sheffield University. And, you know, like Tom says, often when you raise the question of kind of ultra-zealous student politics being censorious or being, you know, something that you shouldn't just laugh at, but also take seriously, you get called a kind of snowflake right-wing person who's panicking about university. But this is quite serious. And I was thinking about what it's like trying to remember back to what it's like to be a student. <laughs> and often, as it was the case with me, you go to this new place, you meet all these new people, people from different parts of the world, people from different parts of the country. It's your first time alone. Some of you sent was for me away from your parents. You're going to make mistakes and you're mm. going to say things and you're going to have to find your way. You have to find out what kind of an adult you are, all these things. And it's really actually terrible that you would be expected to do that in such a tightly regulated environment. I mean, I'm sure that most of us have said things at university that I'd absolutely wince at now and be embarrassed by, but it's all, it's, there's no forgiveness here. There's no leeway. There's no sympathy. And also there's no kind of sense of collegiate atmosphere. I mean, yeah. I would be expecting Sheffield students to be following these people around, find out who are being paid and make sure, and, you know, raise the argument with them. This is a terrible kind of lack of solidarity among students. 
made worse by the fact that they're employed by the university. Yeah. It's in, in, another interesting facet of this, that the distinction between the university administration and students, that hostility is sort of being melted away in this new woke world where everyone wants to lean on each other in the pursuit of diversity or anti-racism or whatever it is. And it, you just end up making university this sort of almost prison-like environment in which you step out of line once and you're going to be shot essentially by the woke police. It's terrible. I think I think that's a really important development that you've you've hit on. Um, you know, the move of woke politics from the kind of student union to the university administrator. Because, you know, at the at the end of the day, you could maybe forgive some of the younger students for their excesses and for being overly pious mm. and for, you know, maybe maybe being a bit overly censorious and you could think, oh, well, you know, they'll they'll grow up and they'll grow out of it. But, you know, these are adults mm. coming up with these policies. You know, the the vice chancellor was very happy to be quoted in the BBC talking about how he wanted to use this microaggression policy to change the way we think about race. I mean, quite why it's his job to change how people think about race. You know, people actually have pretty good attitudes to race in general. People aren't racist, least of all at university where people are probably more politically correct than the average person. Mm. And the problem with that as well is, of course, is that it gives it a more more of a permanence. You know, this kind of um, woke inquisitorial culture now lives on and it survives the passing of, of students in a way that um, maybe the previous kind of round of political correctness might not have. Mm, exactly. And I think that's one thing which in this discussion has been a little bit unfortunate is that the students' unions often end up kind of um, carrying the can for all of this stuff when mm. um, universities have been largely complicit in a lot of it. And actually, it, as in this case, kind of, you know, meeting out some of the more absurd type of kind of woke policies themselves and defending them. I thought the vice chancellor's comment about changing how people think about race and how people think about racism was really telling because this is not racism in mm. any meaningful sense if you can't really say that someone from the home counties who shows up at university is grown around up around exclusively white people and says something a bit clumsy is meaningfully contributing to racial oppression it's just an absurd kind of prospect and it trivializes you know the the um, issue of racism full stop to kind of bring it down to this level of, of etiquette also i think it reminds us of a point that brendan o'neill was made on spikes and a lot of us have talked about which is the way in which woke politics political correctness whatever you want to call it in the name of anti-racism is like rehabilitated racial thinking this mm. is a perfect example of it so you have this proposed problem which is that people are going around and, and saying things to people and making people feel other and treat effectively treating them differently making them feel different and their response to this is for them to effectively have to constantly think about and readjust their behavior in an almost you know kind of slightly overly self-aware way yeah. depending on who it is that they're talking to if it's someone that's not like them if it's someone who does come from a different background to kind of add this extra kind of layer of cautiousness which doesn't seem to me to be particularly positive and it's just one of those examples where the alleged disease is far more preferable to the to the proposed cure because if you actually would take this to its logical extent which is rather than just letting people kind of you know get on and rub up against each other from time to time and sometimes get things wrong and have it out and all the rest of it but you actually um, make people effectively feel far more uptight around each other from different backgrounds at a time when they should and are largely feeling far more relaxed about each other i think that's mm. a perfect example of how these things in the name of anti-racism, actually rehabilitate kind of a level of, if not racial hostility, then certainly a level of cautiousness, a certain level that people are different and you need to be constantly reminded of that. And that's a really unfortunate thing, especially for young people at university.
You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Five MPs have made it through to the next round of the Labour Leadership Contest, having earned the backing of enough MPs and MEPs. Keir Starmer leads the pack with 88 nominations, trailed by Rebecca Long-Bailey with 33. A new poll, however, suggests that Long-Bailey is now the most popular candidate with members, and she's also been endorsed by the Corbynite pressure group Momentum. In the next stage of the contest, candidates need to get the backing of trade unions. Starmer has already been endorsed by Unison, the country's largest union, while Lisa Nandy is backed by the now quite small National Union of Mine Workers. Ella, have any of the candidates caught your eye for good or bad (laughs) reasons? Well, I think we were saying this when we were talking about the Labour leadership last time. It's not been an exceedingly interesting race. And I mean, no scandals have happened. And I think it's still a bit early to tell. But you have to remember all of these people are largely coming from the same background, which Mm. is they have to a greater or lesser degree moved their position from being viciously anti-Brexit to now being begrudgingly understanding of the Brexit vote in a kind of false way. Um, Lisa and Andy being the one who is sort of most convincingly making that argument because she has, to be fair to her, in years before said that the Labour Party's Brexit policy was going to come back to bite it. Um, She has more of an understanding coming from the constituency that she does of what Labour leave voters are like um, Mm. personally and politically. But there's this general sense still that they haven't really learned their lesson. And there was one example that's come up quite recently today, actually, we're talking on Thursday, that really brought this home to me. Rebecca Long-Bailey, who by many people's accounts is the favourite, was there's an exclusive out today by Red Raw News that she was quoted last year answering questions from Catholics um, about abortion. And now this might sound like a kind of side issue, but it's, a, it's actually very telling. Um, she was asked whether or not, as a Labour leader, she would go through with the Labour Party's quite exciting proposals to decriminalise abortion in the manifesto. And she really rode back and she said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Now, we did mention abortion rights in the manifesto, but we didn't say anything about time limits. And we certainly didn't say anything about increasing time limits. Mm. And that pisses me off but very badly on one hand because I care very much about abortion rights. But it also really tells you about the Labour Party's problem, which is that, and its continued problem, which is that it pretends, it bullshits. It yeah. says, it puts things in its manifesto. And then later on, you realise that actually it wasn't ever going to do anything that it promised. And this has always been its problem on things like Brexit, because it makes all the right sounds. You know, Rebecca Longbay talking about progressive patriotism and moving forward and Keir Starmer saying, we're going to bring the country together. And then it's examples like that where they are very easily able to row back on stuff and say, hang on a minute, we didn't really, we didn't really mean we're going to implement Brexit. We didn't really mean that we were going to decriminalise abortion, where you have to take a step back and think these people are essentially full of shit, basically. And it's a really insulting way to treat voters. So if I was feeling uninspired by them before, (laughs) I'm feeling full of hatred for them now. They love bathing in the glow of radicalism, but without ever backing it up with any significant or interesting ideas. Um, Tom, what have your thoughts been? 
And I thought the the most striking example of that has been Keir Starmer, who manages to keep making speeches and writing editorials in which he says absolutely nothing at all, but kind mm-hmm. of just name checks socialism, name checks radicalism. I think he's probably definitely the kind of nadir of all of that. I thought this week was, I mean, Lisa Nandy has probably been the biggest story of this week, I think it's fair to say, so far yeah. at least in Labour leadership. First of all, because she was already gaining a bit of ground. She got that NUM nomination. She apparently impressed at the hustings a couple of weeks ago. She gave a speech to the RSA this week on internationalism. Then she was on the Andrew Neil show, giving what was by all accounts quite a strong performance, given um, how tough an interviewer he is. And obviously from um, Brexiteers' perspective or people who are more who recognise at least that Labour needs to reconnect with those kind of more communitarian Labour Leave type voters. She has been the most interesting one. But given that, I think it just shows how terrible the kind of rest of the competition is on some level. This is not a shot at Lisa Nandy necessarily. She's quite, again, in comparison to the rest of them, quite straight talking, quite thoughtful. You know, there's loads of in- things in that RSA Q&A, which I thought were quite interesting, for instance, saying that the problem with a Green New Deal is I say that to people and it means absolutely nothing to them. They just mm. think of their job at the factory going, <laughs> which yeah. is, there's a few insights like that. I think, yeah, she does get it on some level. And she is redressing, it feels like, the problem that Labour have had for a while, which is the fact that they would only ever really think about Brexit in kind of economic terms, insofar as this was a cry for help. Um, This is the wail of people who've been subjected to too much austerity and they just want us to take notice of them. They weren't necessarily looking at the other kind of concerns on there. But at the same time, I think she's still, nevertheless, you know, someone who openly backs a soft Brexit, which we yeah. all know is not Brexit. She said this week, she said, I always said that we should accept leaving the European Union whilst maintaining our economic and political partnership. <laughs> it's a very Orwellian thing to say. And also, particularly her comments on free movement this week, which I thought were very interesting. Not because I don't expect someone who believes in free movement not to advocate for it, but at the same time, it's that this kind of approach, which is to say, I know you have these concerns, but I'm just, and I, I listen to them, but you don't necessarily do anything about them. You don't try to reform the argument necessarily. You don't try to kind of propose a different kind of model. It's just effectively to say, you were wrong, but we'll look after you a bit better. And it, that, even though Lisa and Andy does have a bit more depth than the rest of them, I think what's interesting is the fact that none of them can really have that much of a response to it. And it, they all just feel, even in the sense that they've accepted Brexit, despite the fact they kind of all look like they want to do damage limitation around it, it makes them look so thoroughly conservative. You know, mm. you've had this big break for the status quo and this desire of ordinary people to have more democracy. And all they want to say is, we hear you, we'll give you more bus services. That's yeah. just, it's it's interesting interesting how unappealing the pitch is, even from people like Nandy, who are semi-interesting. It's, it's interesting that word listening. It makes me think that, in, especially in Nandy's case, there's a kind of Blairite kind of vibe to it. It's almost like listening means a listening exercise. We will consult you, but we won't actually <laughs> go along with what you like. And and it's it's telling that they're still talking about it in the same terms as before the Brexit debate. So using the word free movement is very odd because we know the free movement people as you know, defined by the various mm. EU treaties ends when we leave the European Union. If, you know, if you believe in a kind of more open and liberal immigration policy, why is it still this attachment to the EU policy, mm. which we know has all kinds of problems, if you're, even if you believe in, in, in that kind of view? You know, we know that it restricts um, immigration to basically all non-white countries and allows the free movement of, you know, 27 other white countries. So there's, it has all kinds of issues. It has also inbuilt in it, you know, a whole kind of series of kind of anti-worker case law via the ECJ, you know, whether it's um, around posted workers or, you know, the right to basically allow workers to have the kind of similar workers' rights that they would have in in um, less developed countries as they would in, in the more developed countries. So why, why not 
as you say, reformulate the argument a little bit, reflect a little bit, rather than just um, say, let's go back to free movement the way it was. The reason that they won't reformulate it is because they can't. I mean, this is the part of the Labour Party's problem is that it's it hasn't changed anything, really. None of the candidates have... This is what I mean by just paying lip service to the Brexit argument and saying, like you said, just saying we're listening. It's because if they were to fundamentally change it, then it would be admitting that they've been catastrophically wrong for yeah. the last... 10 years and and longer on the issue of how to address the working class. I mean, one of the most farcical things of this entire leadership race so far has been the kind of like workerist, my dad was poorer than your dad's <laughs> yeah. argument, you know, whether it be the whole mess with Keir Starmer's toolmaker father mm. who was actually, you know, whether or not he was a toolmaker, he certainly owned a factory or whatever it was, <laughs> the Rebecca Long-Bailey should she hyphenate or should she not hyphenate her last name? And it's all just been a bit embarrassing. That plus the kind of, I've seen lots of commentators talking about how great it is to have, you know, people like Nandy and Jess Phillips who have accents out there. And you just think, <laughs> oh my God, like, it's mm. the most insulting thing for working class voters to listen to, which is that, you know, oh, what we really just needed is someone who sounded like us, never mind the, our actual political aims. And I think it's still playing into that kind of identity politics, which we forget. Forget, we forget that side of the Labour Party with all of the mistakes it makes on the Brexit front is that actually a large part of why people are also turning away from the Labour Party is because it's full of woke nonsense. Mm. And part of their approach now, you know, saying it has to be a woman, even though I think probably Keir Starmer's going to win, there'll be a lot of red <laughs> faces, um, and it has to be someone from up north and all this mm. kind of stuff is the, is the kind of patronising crap that people have left behind. I mean, it, the, if there's one satisfying thing, out of all of this, it's that, okay, you might have to kind of grin and bear the whole kind of workerist approach of Jess Phillips mouthing off and, you know, Rebecca Long-Bailey talking about her past and how difficult it was. Is that Thornbury is on, is it 1% or less? Yeah. Um, and, that, <laughs> and, you know, if there's one lesson perhaps that the Labour Party has learned is that it can't have a figure like Emily Thornbury in all her um, EU necklace glory and, <laughs> you know, and her knighthood background and husband is that that isn't going to wash with voters. That's maybe that's a bit of identity politics I can <laughs> get along with. Well, I think, no, but I think the key thing is on, on this kind of four Yorkshiremen aspect to the Labour mm. leadership race is, is that, you know, the voters have just voted for Boris Johnson, old mm. Italian, yeah. destined to be prime minister all his life. But even on the other side, you know, one of the greatest socialists that Britain has ever produced is Anthony Wedgwood Ben, who inherited a, a peerage, for God's mm. sake. I mean, all Labour really has to do is not insult working class voters. That's exactly it. And, you know, they do have real difficulty doing that, I'm afraid. But it's just interesting because we touched on it a little bit earlier, but it's interesting that this, the two stock responses to Brexit, is that it was economic or it was cultural. Cultural can kind of split either way, either the fact that people felt culturally patronised that, you know, their patriotism or their ways of life were sneered at, or the other side was that there's a culture of racism, basically, <laughs> and that's what delivered it, which we all know is nonsense. But what's interesting is how it feels like the Labour Party are trying to respond to that latter thing but in the most degraded ridiculous way possible by just again you know talking about who's got what accents very feeble attempts to talk about a more progressive type of patriotism and i think it just really shows that um even though this is very prevalent amongst many brexit supporters even this kind of culture argument about just that's the only thing that explains brexit is incredibly limited you don't need mm. to the labor party doesn't need to start you know waving around the english flag or you know kind of hamming up their kind of workerish englishness uh, they just need to stop sneering at people who happen to be quite comfortable with their own national society and national culture and i think 
similarly, it's just this refusal to recognise that, you know, we can discuss the economic points which are valid, we can discuss the cultural points that are valid, but also the core political principle point, which is that people wanted a more democratic society and people like the Labour Party wanted to stop them from having it. That's the core thing which none of them seem to recognise, which is why they're still clinging in one way or another to the EU project, it feels like. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The Film Awards season began this year with Ricky Gervais taking aim at the insufferable wokeness of Hollywood. But just one day later, the hashtag BAFTA's so white started trending. Critics said the BAFTA nominations were insufficiently diverse. And now the Oscars are being slammed for their lack of diversity, even though they nominated a record number of women this year. Tom, the Oscars race row or BAFTA's race row seems to be an almost annual event. (laughs) What, What do you make of it? Well, like you said, I mean, Maren Tom wrote a great piece about this on Spike this week about how in so many respects, it's, this stuff is kind of almost helpful to, um, whether it's mm. BAFTA or the Academy Awards, because it makes them relevant. It makes them part of the conversation. It flatters this idea that a lot of them have that they shape culture and therefore shape society, which yeah. is why they all go out and parade and feel the need at an award show to give speeches about climate change. Ridiculous idea, but it's because they're so self-important. And this kind of constant row just kind of reaffirms that idea and makes us care and mm. have to talk about what most of us would dismiss as kind of, you know, a bit of fun nonsense that comes around every January. So it's a, it's a bit odd that we find ourselves talking about it. I mean, what I find quite interesting, I wrote something about the BAFTAs this week, which, as you said, was put through the ringer. There was only white people who were nominated in all of the acting categories and all the rest of it. But um, what was interesting is how, in some respects, this wasn't an annual event, because last year at the BAFTAs, it was far more diverse. No one said anything about it. So it's just yeah. this, kind of, this time around, it's just... It's almost like unless there is a perfect representation in every category every year, people are going to just have something to talk about. It just makes you feel like this conversation is going to be completely unending. And there's just so many examples which are just completely ignored from the mix. Now, we all know that um, both BAFTA and the Academy Awards, whoever's voting for these things are obviously a little bit out of touch because year after year you get people with all different backgrounds kind of, you know, kind of passed over um, given the way the system works and given the fact that a lot of industry money will go behind certain films, they'll campaign Mm. heavily for them, all the rest of it. Um, But even then, it's amazing how selective people's memories are. You know, they forget that whilst, as I said, the BAFTAs are so white this year, you know, last year, Rami Malek won for one best actor. Yeah. Um, He's an Egyptian-American guy. Um, Alfonso Cuaron won for Roma for best director and best film, I think. And as you've written about on Spikes, actually previously, Fraser, over the years that we've had the Oscars so white controversy as that's rumbled on, the um, three amigos, so Cuaron and um, Inaritu and uh, Guillermo del Toro, um, three Mexican directors, have been cleaning up. (laughs) So there's this this kind of slight kind of selectivity, it feels like, because really it's about just making the the point it's about just applying that identity politics lens it doesn't really matter who's been nominated in that respect and i think one thing that's underappreciated in all of this stuff is that it's this both in both these cases it's thousands of industry types making completely separate decisions based yeah. on their own tastes the idea is some kind of like racist plot it couldn't even be organized you know mm. I think the main point to take away from this is that, of course, these award show uh, voters are incredibly out of touch. Robbie Collin had a good piece in The Telegraph making this point this week. The problem is not necessarily that they're racist, it's that for whatever reason, the thousands of people who make these votes on these things don't have particularly good taste and all kinds of people get covered over with that. But it just comes back to the main point about why are we taking this stuff 
so seriously. We know these things are industry events. They're designed to um, pat people on the back and make sure a few, pick a few films out and make sure they get a little bit more money. Why has this become such a huge discussion? I thought it was interesting that there, there wasn't so much of a diversity row last year before the um, Oscars, but there was one afterwards because not, when they rewarded diverse films, they rewarded the wrong diverse films. So the classic example was Green Book, which won Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for the brilliant Mahershala Ali. So The Guardian described this this victory as evidence that Hollywood doesn't get race. It said the film Green Book was a trite, white-centred tale. So even when it was rewarding black talent, this was seen as, as not good enough. Bohemian Rhapsody, similarly, as you said, Remy Malek won the BAFTA for Best Actor. He won the Oscar for Best Actor as well. But NBC said that this was evidence of old white liberals taking revenge on the diversity agenda. The way they described Bohemian Rhapsody was that it compresses the story of a non-white queer man into an arc that lionises the white people around him. I mean, they, so literally even rewarding the films with diverse casts that people claim they want is itself um, evidence of a kind of racist agenda. You just can't win. I no, think. and it's never ending. I think the whole point of that you know, that Marin um, makes in her column is very apt, which is that this it's a, it, both sides need each other. So, you yeah. know, the, the outrage brigade needs something to be outraged about, otherwise they become essentially meaningless and then the Oscars become meaningless and we all get on with our lives. I mean, the insulting thing about all of this is that the suggestion is that in fact, these aren't films and this isn't an award show. It's a lesson for mm. viewers. I mean, the fact that hardly anyone watches it anyway in its entirety, people seem to forget. I know very few people who actually sit and watch this and take lessons from it and take political points from it. But that's the suggestion. And that's why all the celebrities get up and say things. That's why you see farcical things like Joaquin Phoenix, fantastic actor, really love him, brilliant in what he does then gets, you know, gets expected to be applauded for wearing the same Stella McCartney suit in the name of climate change. I mean, the, stunning and brave. Yeah. It's just the out, the, the extent to which these people are out of touch is wild. But yeah, it's all engineered around the suggestion that they are setting an example for the public. And that's why it was so fantastic when Ricky Gervais came out and said, you do not get to lecture the public on anything. Cause yeah. th it's, there's that whole idea of a self awareness of it being, uh, even just a little bit in bad taste to suggest that these exceedingly wealthy people mm. would have the right to tell us how to think and feel about things. That, that idea is gone. And of course, going to see a film is something that primarily people do not decide on on the basis of their political tastes. Yeah. There is plenty of films that I completely disagree with in terms of politics. You know, for example, the n recent production of Little Women mm. and by director Greta Gerwig is fantastic. Mm. And it doesn't matter that it really annoyed me that the cast came out and said, well, men should watch this because otherwise they're being sexist. <laughs> I just don't care because it was a great film yeah. and she's a great director. And you just think, whatever. I mean, lots of artists actually turn out to be total bastards and you, yeah. you don't like them but when they are in the film and acting they're brilliant and so there's that distinction between artifice and art and film and real life politics has been completely blurred and we're expected to kind of take the message from the awards ceremony that the fact that they don't represent diverse society means that actually we're all really incredibly undiverse. Also ignoring the fact that numbers that go to watch these films isn't represented in the awards that they get either. Mm. Well, that's a really good point. Yeah. You can see a very clear 
divergence between the films that get rewarded at the Oscars mm. and the kind of films that the public are going to see. Now, there's lots of things behind that. It's partly because there are so many bloody superhero films yeah. nowadays and they make far more films than they should for children rather than for adults. Mm. But it is fascinating that the less that people tune into the Oscars, the less that people are watching the movies that, you know, these kind of these stars are in, the more they feel the need to hector us and the more relevant they feel to our to our lives. There's, there's this really unpleasant bit of it, and I think and Ella touched on it there as well, which is um, not only kind of using this as an opportunity to kind of talk to the audience, but also the way they kind of talk about the industry almost, is that there's black films and there's white films, and yeah. there's black directors and there's white directors. And you see this each year with, again, wanting to, to diversify the Academy and or to diversify BAFTA or to make sure that they've got more people in from different backgrounds and therefore that might kind of just shake things a little bit insofar as what kinds of films are being nominated. Um, on the one hand, it's quite clear they do need to do something to challenge the sort of group think that is set in and thought it was fascinating that both Margot Robbie and Scarlett Johansson showed up twice across the 20 acting nominees and as Colin puts it it's like as good as they are they're not responsible for one fifth of all the best acting in 2019 <laughs> it's a ludicrous proposition so something's going wrong but again this assumption so BAFTA have had a big diversity drive both in terms of their membership as well as creating a couple of specific awards um, which uh, the film production company in question have to meet certain criteria or the film has to meet certain criteria in order to be admitted but it doesn't seem to have had much of an effect. And also the other thing that's interesting is that this assumption that effectively if you get um, more black people in your um, voting set, that they're all just going to vote for the black films and that will balance mm. things out. It's a horrendous <laughs> way to think about people and to think about art. And it's just, even though the awards are ridiculous and we all know that, it does at least respond to a broader kind of cultural sense, which is the racialization of everything um, and even, you know, things which are supposed to be things that we can all enjoy. And you, even though we should just treat this stuff with the scepticism and cynicism a lot of it deserves, there is something unfortunate about all that because it does permeate society to some extent. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.